Chapter Four of Historic Girlhoods, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in September two thousand thirteen. Historic Girlhoods, Volume One by Rupert S. Holland. Chapter Four. Catherine de Medici the girl of medieval italy fifteen nineteen to fifteen eighty nine a stone bench with arms carved to represent crouching lions stood under an ilex tree in a corner of the medici gardens in florence there on a certain autumn afternoon sat two girls talking languidly for the day was hot both were dark but one looked much like a hundred other girls to be met in the streets of florence the other was striking her long oval face was very pale and seemed the more colourless in contrast with the black hair which she wore low on her forehead and over the tips of her ears her lips were thin and straight and her eyelids made her eyes look long and narrow almost like two slits from which gleamed a singularly bright or a dull light depending on whether she were interested or indifferent delicate black brows were pencilled above those eyes she was handsome but one might also judge that she was crafty just now she was admiring the glitter of a ruby in a ring upon her hand how much it looks like a drop of blood she was saying hast thou ever seen one of those rings bianca with a little hidden place to carry poison my uncle filippo has one the duke's goldsmith made it for him i hate all such things said bianca if i had such a ring i'd throw it into the arno nevertheless they are useful sometimes my uncle and the duke are playing at being friends now but thou knowest that to-morrow they might be well at each other's throats she smoothed a fold of the green gown on her knee i like my uncle but the duke she shrugged her shoulders I trust him no more than I would the rabble of Florence. He is kind to me now. In good faith I know there is some reason for it. Tis not love of me or because I am a girl of this house of the Medici. Softly, warned Bianca, here is he now coming through the garden. There came towards them a singular group. One was a tall man, dressed in doublet and hose, with a long heavy gold chain hanging almost to his waist, and a gold girdle in which was stuck a short dagger, the handle of which glittered with precious stones. A velvet cape hung from his shoulders, and on his head perched a flat velvet cap, tilted at an angle. He bore a certain resemblance to the girl in green, he had the same cream-white skin, lustrous black hair, and narrow, searching eyes. Beside him came a dwarf, dressed in party-coloured brown and gold. He had to take two little hopping steps to every long stride of the man with him. On the other side of the duke stalked a big greyhound, a certain stately grace in every movement he stood so high that the duke could pat his head and pull his long ears without stooping the girls rose and curtsied as the others reached them the duke with a smile in his black eyes waved his hand for them to be seated 
"'Tis pleasant here in thy little nook, Catherine,' said he. "'This work over state affairs in my cabinet "'makes my head buzz as if twere a hive of angry bees. "'What honeyed thoughts must be yours, my lord?' observed the dwarf. "'Honeyed indeed, since they were of my fair Catherine,' answered his master. "'Lie down in the shade, good lad, and rest thy overworked wits.' I would have a talk with my dear niece if she will give me room upon her bench. Catherine moved, and the duke sat down. Bianca rose, but the duke bade her stay. I have no secrets from Catherine's friends, said he. Thou knowest well, little lady, he began, that we of the Medici have had our ups and downs. Young as thou art, thou hast not escaped them. Recall those days when thou wert at a convent, and we were striving to retake Florence from the barbarous chiefs of the Republic. Did not Battista Che, wretched man, propose that thou shouldst be set out between two battlements where the artillery fire would sweep across thee? I remember well, said Catherine, her eyes gleaming as she spoke. And later did not Castiglione advise that rather than hand thee over to the care of our holy father the Pope, thou shouldst be given to the soft mercy of the mercenary soldiers? That I remember also, said Catherine. Though I was only nine, I shall never forget those days. I only recall them, continued the Duke, that thou mayst consider how uncertain is the life of a Medici, and may understand with what care I have looked to thy welfare. Thou art dear to me as my own daughter, and as a daughter I have planned for thee. Now for my news. I have arranged to marry thee to a son of the French king. He looked for some surprise on Catherine's part, but she showed none. She gazed straight ahead of her, her eyelids drooping a little over her eyes. The French king has two sons the Dauphin and Prince Henry. Which am I to marry? she asked quietly. The duke crossed one knee upon the other. I cannot tell thee yet, he answered. The Dauphin for preference, but Henry if need be. The king has raised objections to the first, but a house like ours, which has given two popes to Christendom, might well provide a queen for the throne of France. One or the other it will be. Catherine bent her head. I trust thou hast always found me dutiful, said she, and wilt in this. The duke, his white fingers playing with the chain around his neck, eyed the girl closely. Thou art a curious maiden, Catherine, he observed slowly. I tell thee that thou art to marry a Valois and go to Paris, and thou showest as much excitement as if I said the wind had veered a quarter. Is it nothing to thee to marry and leave thy home? Catherine smiled, her eyes bent on the greyhound which lay crouched at her feet. Good my lord, she answered, I have known ever since I was old enough to think of such things, that some day thou, or some other of my kinsmen, would come to me and say, Catherine, thou art to marry such and such a prince. To me they are all alike, dressed of a piece. I know not even if they be comely or no, but only that such a one is heir of France, and such is Prince of Savoy. 
I am ready to live in Paris or in Milan as it suits my kinsmen. As for leaving home, thou hast said thyself that my days here have been somewhat hazardous. I have no reason to love these Florentine gentlemen overmuch. True, agreed the duke, thou sayest wisely, surprising wisely for a maid thy years. If I mistake not, thou wilt play this game of statecraft shrewdly, with an eye ever to the stakes and little concern for the other players. It is well the Medici have never played the fool. One word more. Shortly thou and I and thy good uncle Filippo Strozzi must leave for Leghorn, there to meet the Pope and the envoys of the King of France and sign the marriage papers. I am right glad that Filippo will go. He will safeguard thee as carefully as I. Now must I take my leave. May thy dreams be sweet, savoured with the thought that some day thou mayest be queen in France. He rose and poked the dwarf with his toe. Come, good jester, much sleep maketh the wits dull. Then should mine be sharp, answered the dwarf, springing up. He who serves the Medici sleeps with one eye open. And so he must, agreed the duke with a laugh. He called to the dog, and the three went back across the lawn as they had come. Only when they were out of sight did Catherine speak. He is a smooth-tongued man in very truth, Bianca, said she. He talks about the care he takes of me, the thought he spends in planning for my marriage. He would sell me tomorrow to the highest bidder. If I marry one of the French princes, tis so that he may count on France's aid to help him here in Italy. And he is glad that Uncle Filippo will go to Leghorn with me. He is glad forsooth because my uncle is the most popular man in Florence, and could upset the duke in a twinkling had he the mind to do so. His head will rest the easier with me in Paris and the Strozzi out of Florence. Oh, a very gentle kinsman is my lord duke. Thou mayest not do him justice, Catherine, urged Bianca. Justice? Catherine's eyes narrowed and a gleam shot into them. I may be young, Bianca, but I am no fool. I cannot speak for other countries, but here, in Italy, one should trust no one else. Each has some plan in mind, and given the chance will stop at nothing to have his way with things. Hark you now. The girl lowered her voice to a whisper. Thou knowest Messer Lorenzino de' Medici, Duke Alessandro's closest friend and counsellor? Were I the duke, Lorenzino would leave Florence for his health and never return. Twice have I come upon him when he thought he was alone, and each time there was a dark, brooding look upon his face. He has some purpose in his friendliness. What if some evening when the duke walks forth alone, let us say, strolls on the other side this ilex where the poplars are a screen, a man glides from the shadow. A glint of steel and Duke Alessandro is no more. The Florentines are glad and Lorenzino reaps rewards. He has done a public service. Tis so easy, so very easy. Be still, Catherine, what thoughts thou hast. Tis enough to make one shudder. The gleam in Catherine's eyes disappeared and she was the same quiet, indifferent girl she had been before. I only said how easy. 
I only thought the Duke should be more careful of his friends. But even to think such things is dangerous, Catherine, protested the nervous Bianca. No, thoughts have killed no one, answered Catherine with a shrewd smile. Else there had been no one left alive by now. I will not talk with thee when thou art so cruel-minded, Catherine, and Bianca rose from the stone seat. "'Tis not I, tis the great world about me, the men and women of all the Christian courts. Howbeit, tis time we went indoors. I must plan preparation for this journey to Leghorn the Duke told me of. She rose also and moved across the lawn by the side of her friend with a sinuous grace which was remarkable in a girl so young as she. However, as those in the Medici palace often observed, the Lady Catherine, styled the Princess of Florence, was old for her age in more ways than one. Probably this was to have been expected. Catherine had lost her father and mother very shortly after she was born. Her father was Lorenzo de' Medici, and her mother Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne, before her marriage. Her father had been the head of his family in Florence, and the real ruler there, although the Florentines were so jealous of what they considered their independence, that he had never dared proclaim himself lord of the city, and use the title of Duke of Urbino. Even so, after Lorenzo's death, the Medici had been driven from Florence and had had to fight desperately to retake it. At that time the leaders of the Republic in the city had shut Catherine, who was only nine years old, in a convent, and had discussed the best way in which to be rid of her, as the Duke had so thoughtfully reminded her. When the Medici finally took possession of the city again, Alessandro was the head of the family, and became tyrant of Florence, calling himself Duke of the City of Penna. He released Catherine from the convent, and adopted her into his own family, giving her the title of Princess of Florence. Catherine, although she was only fourteen, had seen enough of the men of her family to distrust them almost as much as she did the people of the city. On all sides she had found treachery and deceit and greed for power, and if she was overwise for her years in such matters, it was because she had been brought up to see little else. One man alone she trusted, her uncle Filippo Strozzi, who had married her father's sister, and who was now the most popular man in Florence. The Duke would have liked to be rid of this man by any means he could, but he did not dare deal with him in an underhand way, and so decided to send him to accompany Catherine to Leghorn, hoping that he might be induced later to go with his niece to France and keep away from Florence. Catherine had judged rightly when she said the Duke had laid his plans for her marriage more for his own protection than for her welfare. Early in October 1533, the Duke Alessandro, Filippo Strozzi, and Catherine left Florence for Leghorn. In order to dazzle the French court, the Duke had arranged a remarkable suit to accompany the young princess. The entire procession consisted of more than a thousand persons, and when the rearguard was still leaving the gates of Florence, those in the lead had already passed the first village outside the city. Although Duke Alessandro was head of the House of Medici in Florence, the Pope, Clement the Seventh was head of that house in Italy, 
and he had decided that he also would go to Leghorn and take a hand in the wedding plans of the Lady Catherine. Like all the powerful princes of that day, both Pope Clement and Duke Alessandro wished to dazzle the rest of the world with their magnificence, and Catherine must have been surprised at the sights she saw in Leghorn. The Pope had arrived by sea, and his private galley was hung with crimson satin trimmed with golden fringe, and covered with an awning of cloth of gold. This same barge had been fitted with a suit of rooms for Catherine herself, and here were gathered priceless works of art and scores of curious treasures which had been sent to the Pope from distant countries. The oarsmen and the sailors were all magnificently dressed, and three more barges were filled with the officers and servants of His Holiness. Near the papal galleys were moored the barges of the envoys of the French king, headed by the Duke of Albany, and so the harbour was filled with splendid vessels, while on shore Duke Alessandro did his best to amaze the simple people of Leghorn with the wealth and magnificence of the lords of Florence. There followed many meetings between the Pope and the Duke and the French envoys. It was settled that Catherine's marriage dowry should amount to a hundred thousand ducats, a very large sum of money for even such a rich house as that of the Medici to pay. Then the question arose as to which of the French princes she was to marry, whether the Dauphin or Henry, Duke of Orléans. The Pope and the Duke urged that she be married to the Dauphin, but the French king would not consent, and finally the two Medici princes realized that they had better take the younger son while they could get him, and agreed that Catherine should marry Henry. But by this time they were so much afraid that the French king Francis I would try to break his agreement with them, that they insisted on an immediate wedding for Catherine, and journeyed on to the city of Marseille in order that it might take place at once. If the Pope and the Duke were fond of gorgeous display, Francis I was even more so. Although he had given many splendid entertainments before, he outdid himself on this occasion. The wedding feasts for Henry and Catherine lasted thirty-four days, and during all that time the Pope and the King witnessed tournaments and sham sea battles, listened to music and to the poems of the troubadours, and met at the banquet table to eat and drink and make merry half the night. So Catherine, just fifteen years old, was married to Henry, who was three weeks older. Catherine's opinion of the treachery and deceit of the people of her time was quite correct. She had told Bianca only what was the truth, for in medieval Italy everyone in high place was a conspirator, and the men of her own family were the worst. The Pope and the Duke had wanted to marry Catherine to the Dauphin, so that she might some day be Queen of France. They found they could not do this, and must take the second son. History does not tell what plots were hatched on that golden barge of Leghorn, but history does state that only a very short time after the wedding the Dauphin died, and that it was generally believed that he had been poisoned. He had been taking part in some athletic games at Tournon on a hot day in August, and when he stopped, being very warm, he asked for a glass of water. It was given to him iced, and a short time later he died. 
the man who gave him the glass had been one of those who were with duke alessandro at leghorn thus whether by their own devices or by chance the heads of the house of medici saw their little lady catherine the wife of the heir to the french throne catherine was shrewd and she studied the people about her in france with the same skill that she had shown in florence she saw that she must win the affection of the king if she were to escape suspicion of taking part in the many plots that were made against him so she stayed close beside him whenever she could and was always ready to do whatever he might suggest until very shortly francis found himself exceedingly fond of this quiet willing little daughter-in-law who seemed to admire him so much she studied henry and found him vain and pleasure-loving above everything else and so she let him go his own way interfering with nothing that he wished to do but waiting until she might have the chance to win some power over him and she studied the courtiers men and women so that she might be able to play them like pawns at chess one against another when the day should come on which she should be queen of france as she waited she saw cunning and deceit win one victory after another in italy and france she heard how the brooding lorenzino de medici even as she had predicted to bianca had become duke alessandro's closest friend and greatest flatterer in order to find the chance to strike and kill him and she heard how the people of florence had proclaimed lorenzino a patriot for ridding them of the duke and how her uncle filippo strozzi one of the noblest men of the time had vowed that he admired the assassin so much that each of his sons should marry one of lorenzino's daughters catherine became a most powerful woman but powerful through fear she had learned the lesson of her childhood well she was a medici and therefore overweeningly ambitious and she was as scheming as clever and as cruel as any of her famous family her husband henry became king of france and was killed in a tournament her three sons became kings of france in turn and during all their reigns she was the power behind the throne during all her life the court of france was a cobweb of intrigue in which no one was safe and a man or woman became powerful only to be secretly put out of the way lest he or she should grow too strong she was beyond doubt one of the ablest women in french history and she might have done much to make france great and respected but instead she almost ruined it by her selfish ambitions history lays at catherine's door the killing of innocent huguenots in all parts of france known as the massacre of saint bartholomew's eve with all her gifts she could not rise above the teachings of her girlhood in italy and so she stands out as a queen of treachery and bloodshed thoroughly typical of her age in his darker sides End of chapter four